Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Well, last night, voters were introduced to Jill Biden, who many Democrats already knew from past campaigns. And the state spoke virtually during the roll call, officially nominating Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee for president. Many Democrats also tuned in to see the short speech from progressive Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was tapped to take care of a piece of conventional protocol. I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for president of the United States of America. Ocasio-Cortez, a rising star in the progressive wing of the party, says her number one goal is getting President Trump out of office, but she did not mention Joe Biden's name in that very short speech. Some progressives were upset that she was just given a short speaking slot, less than two minutes, and that Republicans got more primetime airtime during the convention. So is the Democratic Party doing enough to motivate progressives to vote in November? And not just vote in November, but get out the vote in November. Joining me now is a man who knows a thing or two about progressive politics. He ran for mayor of Chicago in 2015. He was a Sanders delegate in 2016, and he's currently the congressman of the 4th District here in Chicago. Chewy Garcia. So what did you what do you make of the convention so far this year, the virtual convention? Well, it's uh, quite, uh, quite uh, different. Uh, I've been to... <laughs> A number of conventions uh, from 1984 in San Francisco to uh, 88 in mm-hmm. Atlanta, the Chicago Convention, and then, of course, four years ago in Philadelphia. And uh, it's very, very different. Obviously, uh, the pandemic uh, is affecting everything that we do. But I have to tell you um, what I like about the convention is that you're able to cover as much uh, ground, so to speak, in terms of speakers and getting uh, messages and videos out uh, without uh, the long delays uh, in between Mm -hmm. uh, speakers. On the other hand, you miss the energy, the color, the sound, uh, the roaring of the crowd, (laughs) and all, all the moving around, you know, on the floor. Uh, that goes on, all the campaign uh, paraphernalia, the signs, uh, you know, people handing you stuff all over the place. So that's the part that uh, is very, very uh, different. And watching it uh, from home, it really uh, feels like it's been shrunk and uh, a lot more (laughs) two-dimensional, except for the videotape. Last night, a lot of the primetime coverage really centered around uh, Joe Biden's ability to work across the aisle. Former General, former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Also, there was a fitting tribute to John McCain. But it was really about trying to go beyond uh, the Democratic Party and reach across to get some moderate Republicans interested in Joe Biden as a candidate. What do you make of that as someone who has run as a progressive and has, uh, you know, been on the left, that this strategy, the DNC strategy of 2020, seems very similar to what the Democratic strategy was in 2016? Well, given how outrageous uh, Donald Trump has been as a president, and certainly the policies and regulations actions and rhetoric that people have experienced over the past four years, uh, there is a yearning to return to civility, to a certain 
conduct uh, that's more becoming of the office. And I think that's what they, too, uh, really focused on. Uh, it, it was a bit long on revisiting, uh, you know, all the years where bipartisanship was a bigger staple of what happened in uh, D.C. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a, a willingness to paint a picture that if we return to that, we can become a more civil, uh, decent relationships right. uh, in Washington, D.C., create a, a different type of an environment in our politics and remove so much of the polarization that's characterized, uh, you know, certainly the last four years, but even going beyond yeah. that. I think there's a place for that. On the other hand, I think that in this election, uh, we've got work to do. I think that tonight we'll see a focus on the future and on energizing uh, the uh, parts of the electorate that didn't show up in 2016, especially right. as it relates to young voters, and certainly the Latino vote is a critical element of that. Yeah. A lot was made this morning about uh, how short Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's speech was, and also just this idea of progressives not necessarily uh, being heard. Because you can make the argument all day long, and you see this kind of fighting on social media about, uh, well, it doesn't matter. you got to get Donald Trump out of office. We understand that. But how do you motivate? How do you get out the vote? How do you get progressives to go door to door in this virtual world, but to pick up the mantle and be Joe Biden's surrogates in these different states? How do you motivate progressives? Well, I would say, first of all, going after the uh, Latino vote is a critical element. In the big scheme of things, if you ask why, look at what's at play. Texas is at a juncture in its history where it could be flipped. In order for that to happen, the Latino vote needs to be engaged like never before. There is a playbook for that. Uh, Bernie Sanders executed it very, very successfully. He got 50% of the Latino vote in Texas. He carried uh, Nevada. He carried California. He engaged the community like never before. Mm -hmm. What was different about it was he hired many young organizers in many of these states, and he went after the infrequent voters, especially young voters who have not voted before in any elections, particularly in Uh, primary elections in order to keep that energy moving forward with people like Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the Biden campaign needs to invest in sectors of the electorate like the Latino vote. It's really, really critical in this election because Latinos today comprise a fifth Mm -hmm. of the population in the country. It's a growing powerhouse across every sector of our economy. It's present in many of these southern states, as well as places like uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera. So there needs to be a serious investment there and to go after the infrequent voters. That's the secret to win in uh, the fall, and it needs to be invested in significantly. So I'm hoping that they will look at the Bernie playbook and begin to invest in that regard. I'm hoping that uh, tonight and tomorrow night we'll also see more prominent 
progressives uh, be able to address the convention. Uh, but I think that given the movement for racial justice in this mm-hmm. country and given everything that has been exposed by the pandemic over the past six months, that people are eager for a change and that that's the message that is going to galvanize voters to come right. out and participate in November. I do think that the movement for racial justice across the country can translate into a much larger turnout, certainly much larger than in 2016. You know, Congressman Garcia, I think it was on you know, on Monday, they said the three big issues to pay attention to here for the Democrats are going to be pandemic, economy, and racial justice. Those are the big yeah. things. And I know that you would like to add health care to that. And this is something yeah. that we've been talking about on this program, but just about the disparities uh, when it comes to health care and the health care system when it comes to uh, black and brown communities in Chicago and, and part of your wards or your districts as well. Congressman Garcia, what, how do we make sure that health care is a priority when it comes to the platform of Democrats running in 2020? Well, in the platform now, uh, and this is the most progressive platform in the history of the party, the commitment is to expand health care and reduce prescription prices. That is very, very important. Also to address uh, the millions of people who have pre-existing conditions that aren't addressed. Uh, while we aim to expand our health care system coverage and lower prescription prices, we're seeing the Trump administration continuing in the federal courts to end the Affordable Care Act. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, by lowering the age uh, requirement on Medicare, uh, which translates into an expansion of the Medicare program by making people eligible for Medicare at the age of 60, you're also guaranteeing additional coverage. I think these are significant commitments They fall short of my preference, especially given everything that we've learned during the pandemic for a Medicare for all single payer system across the country. Uh, These are significant gains that we have made. We will continue to press on these issues in the United States Congress. I think we have not yet processed all of the lessons that are being learned in the pandemic. I think In retrospect, once we have a vaccine, more people will come around to the need for a Medicare for all system. But these are significant gains that we're making in the Democratic Party platform of 2020. Congressman Garcia, the Illinois delegation played a big role yesterday in touring the Chicago facilities of the U.S. Postal Service. We saw, you know, demand for change, and the Postmaster General actually said that they're going to suspend all reorganization plans and changes to the uh, post office and the Postal Service until after the election. That hasn't been good enough for some Democrats. Speaker Pelosi is bringing everybody back to to work on a bill that would address this. What's your take? Is it enough that the Postmaster General has suspended those reorganization activities, or do you want to see more? It is not enough. Uh, These are words that we've heard from the uh, Postmaster General. And let's be clear. He said that they will put a pause on the actions that he had announced previously. What isn't included in uh, those words and in what he has stated thus far is the fact that 
He's taken many actions that have resulted in the delays that people are experiencing all over the country by reducing hours. He's fired experienced employees who understand the system, the uh, disabling of sorting machines in different offices across the country as well, the reduction in overtime are all things that need to be reversed, not just paused, but reversed. The bill that we will be considering on Saturday, as I understand, includes not only $25 billion in funding, but also requires the postal uh, system to go back to the processes and the uh, systems that were in place at the beginning of this year, as of January 1st, 2020. So the bill that we will pass out of the House seeks to address and correct the measures that have been undertaken by this Postmaster General in an effort to bring back a sense of smooth flow and processing of the mail. Right. Uh, the members of the unions, uh, letter carriers, the postal workers who handle the mail in the various offices across the country have told us that they have the absolute confidence that they can handle any amount of vote-by-mail requests that can be generated by this pandemic. And as I stated yesterday at the press conference, the actions taken so far by the Trump administration are nothing less than criminal intent to uh, destroy the postal system and certainly with the aim of undermining the credibility and the results of the election. Well, there's two storylines here. One, that uh, changes to reorganize the Postal Service have been drastic and have been dysfunctional, meaning you see lines and hours cut and all this different you know actions that have happened that have slowed down the actual process. And then there's the secondary story, which is, is the president doing that to undermine the election, knowing that people are going to mail in ballot for the election and this is a way for him to disrupt. You believe in that second storyline. You believe that the president is doing this nefariously for his own good or to undermine the 2020 election. Look, I believe that the joys changes are not just another attack on the Postal Service. I believe that they're a deliberate and malicious attempt to alter the outcome of the November election and suppress communities of color, immigrants, people with disabilities, young folks and voters who don't speak English as their first language. And as we know, voter suppression is long and vicious history in the United States, whether it was poll taxes, literacy tests, complicated registration laws and other forms of voter suppression. Uh, they all trace their origins to times when a major political party decided that democracy wasn't in its electoral interests. And that's what I believe was going on here. What has changed is that there has been an outpouring of support by people across the country for the post office. They have flooded congressional offices with calls demanding that we take action on restoring the normal operations of the post office. It's reflected in polling that's been done over the past week across the country, and that's what forced Donald Trump and DeJoy to make the announcement that they would pause on the changes that they were bringing about. Our job is to make sure that we take every measure to ensure the smooth operation of the post office, especially as we head to November 3rd. My last question for you, Congressman, is just we're waiting as Americans to see what kind of stimulus package is going to be negotiated out of Washington, D.C. 
And it continues in this election season to highlight gridlock between the Republicans and the Democrats and to get this job done. And I know that Democrats have passed this a while back. I've heard the storylines. But but as we get to this moment where we're all wondering what the government's going to do about this ongoing pandemic, what's your reaction to the fact that that gridlock is the storyline that's prevailing? Well, the uh, hyper-partisanship and certainly the uh, November face-off uh, between Trump and uh, Joe Biden has much to do with it. But I think there's also a pattern where Republican legislators in both houses are being subservient and just going along with Trump because they fear him. He has taken the party hostage. It is the Trump Republican Party, they're afraid to speak out against them because they might incur his wrath. And that has affected the negotiations. However, I do see signs uh, today from the White House, from leadership in both the House and the Senate that suggest that they are more open to a compromise. I think Nancy Pelosi, before we left Washington, offered to bring a stimulus package to about a $2 trillion level that was rejected by the White House and Republicans. I think that as we head to Washington for a special session on Saturday, that the prospects for an agreement, even if it isn't everything, but one that I would want are improving. So I'm a little bit more optimistic. We've got to take care of people who are unemployed. Uh, We need rent relief, and we have to ensure that there's adequate funding for testing, tracing, and treatment. Representative Chewy Garcia from Illinois' 4th District. Congressman Garcia, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Check us out tomorrow and stay safe. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.